Welcome to the ENR podcast, the official podcast of the New Zealand Skeptics. I'm your host, Craig Shearer, and joining me today are my trusty co-collaborators, Bronwyn Rideout and Mark Honeychurch. Hey. Hello. As this is our first podcast, let's talk a little bit about the New Zealand Skeptics. So we started in 1986 as a group of scientists and academics concerned about the rise of pseudoscience. You don't need to be a scientist or academic to belong, but having an interest in science and figuring out what's true and what aligns with reality based upon good evidence is what we're about. We're not a bunch of atheist zealots out to disprove God, but if you want to claim proof of God or miracles or that your religion says that the world is only a a few thousand years old, then we'll definitely have something to say about it. So that's a little info about the New Zealand Skeptics. So let me introduce myself. I'm the chair of the New Zealand Skeptics, having held that role for the past five years. In my professional life, I'm a software developer in the healthcare field. I've had a lifelong interest in science and technology, starting out with building electronic circuits as a kid and graduating to computers at high school back in the 1980s. And while I've got a strong interest in science, I actually hold a business degree in information systems. My other interests include photography, cycling, piano, live music production, and singing in a choir. I grew up in Hawke's Bay and now live in Auckland. And I have three adult children and live with my wife, Susan, and her dog, Darwin. So, Mark, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Honestly, I could just repeat, you know, a lot of what you said and it, it would fit perfectly. So um, I am the the past chair of the New Zealand Skeptics. I held the position for three years before you stepped up. Uh, I am a software developer as well. Um, so it's weird just how many people in IT find themselves in the New Zealand Skeptics. We're not the only two on the committee to work in <laughs> software development even. Um, so yes, I, I work writing software here in Wellington where I live, but as people will probably be able to tell from my accent, I don't come from New Zealand. I come from a small group of islands called the Isles of Scilly off the coast of Cornwall in England. Um, so a really weird little place, a couple of thousand people live there. It's, uh, it's quaint and cute, really boring when you're a teenager. But having traveled the world on and off for a few years, um, I spent about a year in the Middle East with my wife and we stopped at New Zealand. It was meant to be a one year stop on the way to South America. That was 15, 16 years ago, and we haven't left yet. We are still here. Fell in love with the place, figured a year wasn't long enough to do it justice. We now have um, three Kiwi kids under our belts um, and we're all happy here in Wellington, enjoying our lives. I think I got into the skeptics in maybe 2012, 2013, went along to skeptics in the pub, really good place to meet other skeptics, then got involved in helping organize the 2013 conference in Wellington, joined the committee at the AGM of the conference and uh, been helping out with the skeptic society since then and just really enjoy having an opportunity to work with the group and basically challenge a whole lot of the nonsense that's out there. All right. Uh, I learned a little bit about you that I did not know. Is it that I come from Silly? Uh, Yes. yes, (laughs) Well, that's at least one of the things. Yes. Very good. So uh, thanks, Mark. So um, Bronwyn, how about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, Craig, I mean, there's some things that uh, I share with you guys and some things that are very different. Um, Like Mark, I'm also not from around here, as you can tell by my accent. Um, I grew up in a small eastern province in Canada called Newfoundland. And in particular, I um, spent a lot of formative years in a military town called Gander. Now, for those who are very much into their Broadway musicals, um, my former hometown was uh, made famous by a hit musical called Come From Away, which is based on a slang that the locals use to call people who come from out not from Newfoundland. Um, And this musical of all things is um, a song and dance extravaganza, which retells the uh, really great experience a bunch of Americans had um, after being stranded in my hometown during 9-11. But for myself, I originally came to New Zealand to do some graduate study um, in the discipline of history and philosophy of science. But my particular interest was sort of um, ancient Greek and Roman mathematics and science. So really into that 
where the initial foundation of our scientific thought, well, I shouldn't say like, you know, the formation of scientific thought. I mean, there's plenty of cultures that preceded it, but just sort of what, what where were the formative years, I guess, or formative foundational thoughts came into Western thought. Um, but as the tale often goes, um, I met a Kiwi, decided to stay, needed to pivot a career, and um, eventually found my way to midwifery, which has really been a topic of conversation and consternation um, in many of these skeptical pub meetups I've been to um, across the country over the past few years. Um, but really, I mean, it's where I am now in terms of my skepticism is really about looking at evidence-based healthcare. Um, and right now I'm really back into the grind of postgraduate study to look at um, sort of um, the research interest in neurodivergence and how that can impact um, aspects of healthcare. Mm, wow, that sounds really interesting. Thanks. So, yes, we've got a very diverse bunch of um, podcasters, I guess, <laughs> all from different origins around the world. Isn't that amazing? So now on to a little bit about our format. So we're planning on podcasting every fortnight. Uh, we put out an email newsletter on a weekly basis, and our podcast is going to cover some of the content of our newsletters giving us a chance to discuss some of the stories between ourselves, and we hope that you'll enjoy the conversation. We also hope that the podcast will open up new audiences, people who might prefer to listen to a conversation about Kiwi skeptical topics, as well as, or instead of reading about them. And we would love it if you shared our podcast with your friends. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe to the weekly newsletter, you can do that on the New Zealand Skeptics website, skeptics.nz. Right down the bottom of the landing page, you will find a box where you can put in your email address and uh, hit the subscribe button. So I guess on to our, onto our topics. Uh, did uh, either of you want to jump in there? I wonder if we could actually just start off talking about what we did today briefly. Ah, yeah, we had a, we had a nice little field trip. Um, Mark was on his lunch break, and I was on campus doing a bit of studying. And uh, as anyone who uh, might be following the podcast on today, the eighth of February, um, many of our listeners may be aware that today was the um, NZ Freedom Convoy, um, which drove all the way down from um, top of North Island, had an overnight stop in uh, Palmerston North or Levin, and made their way to Parliament. So, yeah, so I, I popped in there. It's, it's often um, something I do at lunchtime from my office in Wellington is just pop to Parliament if ever there's a protest and just hang around with the protesters. But uh, normally it's not too hard to just merge when it comes to um, COVID protesting, people that are protesting vaccines and mandates. I stick out like a sore thumb with my mask on and scanning the QR code when I enter the grounds of Parliament. I think everybody turns around to look at me like, what is this guy doing here? So it was another one of those today, but at least today Bronwyn joined me. So in a crowd of a couple of thousand, there were two of us with masks on, which made it feel a little bit less weird. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how many of them do you think made it actually across the Cook Strait? <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting one, wasn't think, it, right? <laughs> I think none made it across the Cook Strait, but I think, if, you know, between Wellington and the rest of North Island, I'd say, you know, it's a good... Certainly over a thousand people there, maybe. So so I think what Craig was alluding to was the uh, the rumor that uh, the protesters that did come from the South Island hadn't realized in advance that you needed to be vaccinated in order to be able to use the ferry or at least go for one of the rapid antigen tests. And given the conspiratorial thinking, they were not keen to jump on that ferry. And apparently people were actually asking the locals if anybody had a boat that they could give people a lift across to the North Island with their vehicles, presumably. I don't know who owns a boat big enough to put a vehicle on, but uh, <laughs> it sounds like not many of them made it from the South Island. Right. But I guess wow. what's pretty um, notable about this convoy is that, um, you know, back in my home country, um, the city of Ottawa has been sort of occupied by truckers for the, almost a couple of weeks now. Um, they've really sort of um, made themselves nice and comfortable in downtown Ottawa. There have been um, stories of protesters um, harassing shelters and demanding food and getting food from homeless shelters um, as a way to de-escalate tensions. They've been honking their horns all night in Ottawa. And now people, people, it's really frayed tensions um, 
they're still trying to decide, I think, the mayor of Ottawa, um, what the police can do. But at the moment, it seems that the truckers outnumber the police. So looking at what's happening in Wellington, it's very interesting to see that it's a very different sort of makeup. Not a lot of actual truckers, though we did see some cabs, but it was a lot of freedom campers and RVs and people in their, um, you know, their little, what would you call the com- the combi vans? <laughs> yeah. And, and something of note as well, there were a whole bunch of speeches given and the whole thing was being orchestrated by a member of Destiny Church, a guy that's been working very closely with Apostle Brian Tamaki. So uh, he was there coordinating the speakers. He had his man up T-shirt on. So it was obvious where he came from. Uh, there was some talk of Jesus. He mentioned Brian Tamaki a couple of times and how Brian had been sacrificing himself for everybody by going to prison and standing up for people's rights. And it felt at the time like the some of the crowd at least was getting turned off by the fact that religion was being interwoven with their protest. And something I've read this evening is that apparently uh, for some people, this was a wake up call that actually this freedom movement, anti-mandate, anti-mask, anti-science, anti-vaccine, that actually a lot of it is being driven by Destiny Church, by Brian Tamaki. And some people are quite upset because an interesting thing they did was they told people to go home. They said, after the protest, make sure you're gone by five o'clock. We don't want anybody blocking the roads. Please don't break the law. And apparently some of the protesters do want to stay longer. And when Bronwyn and I actually drove past Parliament earlier on, they have blocked the road up past parliament still they didn't all go home at five so it looks like some of them are in it for the long haul and apparently some have put up tents on the grounds of parliament so they are really digging in and it looks like they're going to be provided with shower and showers and food and clothes for people who need it and for anyone who might be familiar with that area around the beehive it's not just the road up to parliament that's been kind of blocked if you know where the law school is and the Pipitia campus of uh, Victoria University, that little street completely blocked um, with um, campers, as well as um, one of the keys, um, one of the roads in Wellington, um, they have members of the convoy sort of on either side of the road. So not entirely blocking traffic, but certainly um, causing a bit of a bottleneck. So, yeah, it seems like, you know, their demands are silly. They're, they're asking the government to ignore the best scientific advice that they've been given and just remove the mandate, stop vaccinating children. And I honestly can't see that a a couple of thousand people or a few hundred people as probably a left now are going to change the government's mind. There was a lot of talk about them being the silent majority, about them being sizable enough that they should be able to change things. But we've been really lucky in this country so far that the government has listened to evidence. It's listened to the expert advice that it's asked for, and and it's gone ahead with policies based on that. And I can't see that's going to change because of this bunch of I don't want to be rude to them, but a bunch of people that don't seem to respect science, let's say, um, who are hanging around and going to be getting smellier as the days go on when they're um, in high temperatures with no way to wash properly on the grounds of Parliament. And who knows where they're going to the loo? Yes, that's a scary thought. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Although presumably there are um, um, public toilets available, I guess. Well- we were thinking about it. I'm not sure there are any close by. Um, and a friend pointed out that, you know, a lot of them have camper vans. So it's probably going to be a lot of chemical toilets filling up around Parliament. I'm probably going to avoid the area for a few days, I think. Well, they are nearby to a McDonald's. So I don't know. There may be quite a few people popping in there. Yeah, not if they're not showing their uh, vaccine passes, I'm guessing. That's true. <laughs> mm, true. True. Um, yes. But also, um, you know, you had your usual celebrities. You had your Sue Gray, um, and you arrived just before I did. So was it? Um, did you hear Matt Shelton speak? Yep. So the doctor or ex-doctor Matt Shelton was speaking. I think he might still be registered as a doctor, but he certainly lost his job last year for speaking out against vaccines. And yeah, there were a, there were a few others there that were recognisable. Nothing new. It's the same old stuff about taking our freedoms and turning into a communist state. Um, It's a lot of just trying to scare the crowd, basically hype them up and very, very little in the way of facts. It'll be interesting to see over the next couple of days because they can do they can do speeches from 11 to 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Correct, Mark? 
So that's what they've announced they will be doing. I can't imagine they have permission for that, but it sounds like, yeah, there'll be speeches for the next couple of days at least. I mean, that hasn't really stopped um, sort of the Freedom and Rights Coalition before because um, previous weeks when they've had their marches, um, they've actually sort of ended up co-opting um, time slots, as you could say, um, that were taken up by other groups, such as animal, animal rights groups that were supposed to be having their annual march. For people who are listening overseas, if you want to have a protest or a march to Parliament in New Zealand, you, you have to apply in advance. I love that. You, you book your slot on the grounds of Parliament. You let them know how many people will be turning up and they sort out security for you. Mm. It's so well organized and, and so polite. It's great. But um, so it'll be interesting to see how that party that, you know, what we what's kind of felt like a festival or party atmosphere um, changes. Yes, it doesn't sound very counterculture to have to book in your protest, does it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to see if uh, they're still there in two weeks time when we record the next podcast. I, I, hope I, would, I would be willing to bet they won't be. There'll, there'll be people who stay there for a couple of days at the most and then most of them will be gone, I think. Okay, so uh, shall we discuss um, what, what came up in the, in the newsletters um, over the past couple of weeks? Sounds good to me. Have you got anything for us? Well, I was going to talk about the, um, now that you mentioned Sue Gray and uh, Matt Shelton, I was going to talk about the um, what they did at, at Parliament the other day. It's a bit of a strange story, and I, and I became aware of it through um, a tweet from Dr. Michelle Dickinson, who goes by the name of, of Nano Girl. Uh, so Dr. Dickinson is a, an expert in nanotechnology, uh, and she tweeted out a takedown of claims made by Sue Gray and Dr. Max Shelton. As you know, Sue Gray is a lawyer who takes on many uh, anti-vax and anti-government and freedom-related topics. Her brain, in my opinion, seems to be wide open to almost any conspiracy theory out there. Although in addition to being a lawyer, her first undergraduate degree was in microbiology. Uh, and uh, late last week, she and uh, Dr. Max Shelton, who's currently under investigation by the New Zealand Medical Council, basically hijacked a submission to the Health Select Committee and started trying to introduce some supposed evidence that they uh, had of undisclosed nanotechnology in the COVID vaccine. There's a video online of the pair of them standing on the steps of Parliament, talking into a phone, presumably on a, a Zoom call, to the Select Committee and trying to present their evidence. Um, they'd previously tried to get a meeting with the Ministry of Health officials to discuss their claims and warn the government of the dangers and essentially try and uh, get, get the Ministry of Health to, to stop the rollout of the, of the vaccine. But uh, the Ministry of Health were having none of that, that and refused to meet with them. Anyway, they claimed that some scientists from Austria and also some from New Zealand had done some research into the contents of the Pfizer COVID mRNA vaccine and that they'd seen undisclosed nanotechnology particles in the vaccine. The Dr. Dickinson uh, had a look at the supposed evidence and pointed out that claims that they were making were pretty much nonsensical. And the images were taken from what's called a dark field microscope at low magnification and that there were particles floating around. So Michelle pointed out that nanotechnologists don't use light microscopes as nanoscale objects are smaller than the shortest wavelengths of light. They actually use scanning electron microscopes and the samples being examined have to be frozen to be able to be viewed. So that would preclude things from floating around in the, in the field. Uh, so her, show, her tweets went on to show images of nanoscale crystals, such as plain table salt, uh, most of which look pretty foreign and high tech compared to the macro world that we're all familiar with. So really, I think it's, this is just another attempt by anti-vaxxers to sow fear in the minds of the public. Um, I, I have serious doubts that either Sue Gray or Matt Shelton actually believe the nonsense they're spouting. I mean, looking at this and the pictures and what they've done, this reminds me of an incident maybe seven or eight years ago. Um, the two of you are probably know about Mike Adams, the health ranger. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of the uh, one of the guys in the US that makes a lot of money selling supplements and other stuff. And as part of that, he likes to sow doubt in people's minds about medical science. And here he is with his alternative in this big shop that he's running online. And many years ago, he decided to set up his own lab 
and he bought a whole bunch of equipment that he had no idea how to use. <laughs> and he um, focused it on a McDonald's chicken nugget. So the McNugget was his first target. And yeah, sure enough, when he pointed a microscope at it, some of the stuff magnified looked pretty scary. Um, so there were some weird fibers and they were talking about maybe this is more gallons. And then there were weird crystal things. Again, maybe this is microchips. It was just the herbs and spices in the batter. This is what they were zooming in on. This was not anything to do with <laughs> secret technology or weird fibers that the government's trying to get inside our bodies. But yeah, when you use this equipment, you don't know what you're doing. Everything looks pretty weird. So not surprising that these guys who, as you say, neither of them are well enough first to be doing this, think that they found something significant when they're finding cool stuff, but they're not finding microchips. Nobody's finding microchips in the vaccine. Yes, that sounds a lot like what uh, ghost hunters do with their uh, EM detectors, isn't it? Oh, gosh, that's another whole topic. But I, I think I wrote for the newsletter last year just about the state of miniaturization that we've got to um, and what it would take to have a device that could basically signal remotely inside your body and let's say just do something simple like track where you are and a device that's able to do that to keep itself turned on for weeks or months at a time and and send out a signal to say where you are it's not small it does not fit in a vaccine it does not fit down the end of a needle yeah but maybe it's just communicating with your cell phone <laughs> aha this is what bluetooth was really for <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that that, that uh, certainly does sound sound a bit silly but i think uh, the people who who subscribe to these theories probably aren't swayed by that sort of uh, rational, rational no, thought, unfortunately. I, I think once you become conspiratorial and you think that the government is hiding technology from you and possibly even that they've got technology from crashed UFOs that they're being quiet about, then anything becomes possible, right? Very, very small microchips that do magical things can become reality if you just throw out any kind of evidence. Mm. Indeed. So um, how about we switch over to one of the, the topics that, uh, that you covered uh, last week, and that's, uh, I think, uh, Spotify was something you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so we can, well, I'll give you guys a choice if you want. We can talk about Spotify, or we can uh, talk about audio files. What oh, would interest yes. you guys more? Audio, audio files with an F or with a PH? With a PH. I was with just a going to ask PH. the same question. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, that, that story I wrote was about both. <laughs> yes, well indeed. then let's kill two birds with one stone mark all right what do you want me to do both stories <laughs> the not story sure our listeners have the patience to listen to me for that long but that's very kind <laughs> well let's talk about the audio files as in those who love audio yes okay so the the lovers of high-end audio now um this rant, and it really was a rant that I wrote for the newsletter, was all about a piece of hardware that I found linked to from an article. It was being demoed in an audio file forum, and the first offer was for demo units to be sent out, that some people were being given the chance to give this piece of hardware a test run, see how it affected the sound of their equipment, and um, you know, possibly give some kind of feedback, maybe a testimonial, which is then going to help when the thing goes retail and starts being sold. I wouldn't say on mass because a lot of audiophile equipment doesn't sell to a lot of people, but it's a high price, so they don't need to sell a lot of them. Now, I, I don't know whether you guys have looked into audiophile equipment, but you can get ridiculously expensive. Like you can spend a hundred grand on an amplifier, 50 grand on a one meter pair of cables for your speakers. Uh, and each of these things comes with a whole lot of blurb about why they're better. And it turns out that even if maybe they are better when you come to using proper equipment to measure it, when it comes to the human ear, you can't tell the difference between this and some other things. And one of my favorite experiments is the guy that uses coat hangers. He gets wire coat hangers and he unravels them and he uses those as speaker wire and he compares them to multi-thousand dollar cables in a blind test. 
And in a blind test, people cannot tell the difference. But then audiophiles go on to talk about how actually a blind test isn't the right way to do it. And it's not doing justice to the music or the equipment if you don't know which piece of hardware you're using. <laughs> it just sounds like a real cop out. So any audiophile equipment I really have a problem with because it looks like it's fleecing people that don't know better. And as us skeptics know, a lot of the time, if you spend a lot of money on something, if you believe the hype, especially before you invest in something, your brain can really think that there is a difference. It can really be fooled into thinking that this is working better, this is doing a better job. And that's the case for pretty much anything that gets sold to people. And so I think audio hardware audio file level hardware definitely is a case of that. But there is a subset of audio file hardware that especially drives me mad. And that is the digital stuff. This is the stuff where basically we're dealing with ones and zeros. We're not dealing with an analog signal that may be uh, at risk of getting some kind of interference or corruption. This is a signal that can just be a zero or a one. And when things go wrong, when a bit gets flipped, there is hardware there to correct for it. There, is, there are systems, there are protocols that make sure that any lost information is recovered and the data gets to the other end exactly the same as it left. Um, and so when you see these pieces of hardware that are digital and you see them trying to tell you that it's better for your audio system, it's a really hard one to swallow. And this one is a storage device. It's somewhere where at first I thought you put your audio files for audio files, uh, but it turns out it's not even that. It's where you're supposed to put your operating system for the computer that you play the music in. So the, the audio files aren't even on this. And so I'm not quite sure what these people were thinking was expected from them, but the reviews that were on this forum are absolutely priceless people talking about things like the uh the warmth of the sound and the fidelity and how the sounds mellowed over time as they broke in um there was just so much talk about what the audio sounded like let me get a couple of quotes so here we go baseline is punchy and full but clearly delineated mids are not laid back but slightly forward the highs are as clean as the power supply quality but it's still sounding a bit dry. And another one, very neutral, especially in the high frequencies, no digital nasties, extended highs without any sibilance or hardness. I mean, this stuff, a piece of digital equipment is not making a blind bit of difference to this mm. sound. And just reading these people talking about this is not even a difference from something totally different. This is a difference from a slightly different storage device. So they're testing an Evo 980 versus this new device. And they're talking about the differences it makes to the music. And Craig, I mean, as we said earlier, you, you work in software as well. There is no way this is making a difference to the audio, right? No, exactly. And, and it really does remind me back in the thing. Back in the 80s, I remember reading about people who sort of talked about the error-correcting um, technology built into CDs. And the assumption then, I think, was that somehow if if a CD had to it was read incorrectly and, and the error correction had to click in, that somehow that was degrading the sound because the error correction was kind of making guesses about what the bits were meant to be. But that is, in fact, not the way error correction actually works. It can actually restore the bits to exactly the way they were meant to be. Um, yeah, so, so, yeah so they use things like checksums where they, they take yeah. a bunch of bits and they add them up. And then if something goes wrong, you can use that to calculate what the what which bit has broken and what it should have been. Or if not, you do you do a re-request. So something like TCP or with CDs as well. If you don't read something properly, you go back and do it again. You ask for the data again. And because there's buffering, because these devices generally might have like a tenth of a second of buffering going on, they have enough time to re-get that data if there are any errors that they can't automatically correct. So yeah, th this idea that's making a difference, the only potential difference is that when this audio finally gets to its analog stage, that this, any particular piece of hardware might be inducing some kind of frequency inside that hardware. But when you get to audio file quality stuff, they've already got their digital to audio converter isolated on its own power supply. 
two meters away from everything else. So the risk of a an SSD storage device inducing any kind of current in a piece of hardware in their DAC, it, it's just not happening. So this whole thing is a waste of money. And yet people, want, as soon as it went into production, people started buying it and wasting their money. <laughs> wow. The, the the comments you make there are very interesting, though, considering that uh, that I'm one of these people who has now ditched Spotify and I've uh, jumped on to Tidal. And uh, so Tidal makes the, the claim that, uh, that it is uh, a hi-fi platform and it, it's sending data at a higher bit rate than Spotify was. Uh, and so even on the, the lowest level plan, which is the hi-fi plan on Tidal, you were getting CD quality audio. And I spent quite a lot of time at the weekend actually listening to some music. And to me, it does sound quite a lot better. Uh, but it gives me pause for thought and thinking, well, am I, have I convinced myself that it's going to sound better and therefore it does? Or does it actually sound better? Anything less than a blind test, you just <laughs> cannot trust. And honestly, a friend brought this home to me a couple of years ago. He knows I'm a skeptic. He likes to test me. So when he found out that I'm a big fan of Diet Coke, he poured me out Diet Coke and four cheap-ass Diet Colas, one from the warehouse, uh, one home brand from Countdown, and so on and so forth. And he sat me in front of these five and told me I needed to figure out which one was the Diet Coke that I say there's no substitute for, that this is the thing I have to drink. And <laughs> I'm proud to say I think that I managed to pick the Diet Coke, but I was so nervous, I was so mm. unsure that it was like, actually, yeah, you know, maybe one of these other cheaper colas would be okay because I can hardly tell the difference between them when it comes down to it. And I think it's the same with sound quality that, yeah, unless you're doing a blind test, you, you might be able to convince yourself in your head you're listening to something better. But I, I want to do that blind test with you, Craig. I want to sit down with you and, uh, and yeah. give you blinded <laughs> files with different bit rates and see what happens. Yes, I think very interesting. I actually tried doing a a, um, a test a, a few years ago um, in that I had a, a CD of a track that I could play and also play the same track on Spotify. And and I must say at that time, I struggled to tell the difference. Yeah, from what so, I understand, like 256 bits, I, I think is, or is it kilobits per second. Whatever YouTube has is is normally good enough. A, a variable bitrate is good if you can get it. Um, it especially if you're looking to um, save some space. So a variable bitrate just kind of takes into consideration. There are quiet parts of music where you don't need great fidelity, and then there are parts that are more active where you you need a better bitrate to be able to cope with it. And what I used to use years ago when encoding MP3s was just a, a special encoding um, setting that they had called Alt Preset Standard, and that was done basically by using humans and getting them to listen to different compressions and tweaking and tweaking and tweaking until they got the best compression they could get where humans on audio file quality hardware couldn't tell the difference between the two. Um, mm. And so it was, it was really interesting. It was like a preset that you couldn't get with any number of command line switches telling this piece of software, I want you to compress like this and that. It was a special thing that they'd figured out from a whole bunch of blind testing. Uh, and the compression was really good. I mean, it was down to like five, six megabytes for a five minute MP3, which I'm sure audio files will be aghast about. How dare you compress something to that small? Um, but yeah, that, that, was when we had, that was when we were using Napster. <laughs> yeah, around Napster a little bit later, DC2. And I mean, no, sorry, no. I mean, I was getting all my music legally. And uh... <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> right. So I think we should stop this now because uh, otherwise people are going to think this is just a couple of audio files arguing about the <laughs> hi fi setups. <laughs> All right. Well, yes. And that's the end of my segment. So please don't buy really stupidly expensive hi-fi equipment unless A, you can afford it and B, you understand it's not making your listening experience any better. Hmm. Okay. But it might look cool and impress the girls when it's uh, in your bedroom. <laughs> that's what life's all about. Mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Bromwood, you were going to tell us about uh, cult dining. Yes, um, it may you know, you may have heard in the news recently about Lotus Heart Restaurant in Christchurch. 
Um, Lotus Heart is something of a Christchurch institution for the vegans and vegetarians of the city. Um, it was initially, um, there's two restaurants, um, one that was sort of in the old post office building in Cathedral Square, and then there was another smaller cafe. Um, and then during the earthquake, of course, um, they had to vacate both those premises, and now they've relocated to a really nice Robin Blue Egg building on St. Asaph Street. We, my husband and I went for um, around Christmas time to have a lunch because I like their food. Um, um, but, you know, kind of um, some things really sort of caught our attention. Um, they had a really small QR code just outside, practically minuscule. Um, none of the staff were wearing masks and they all had these um, mask exemptions pinned to their saris or to their tunics. Um, food was still what great the, what though. Are, what are the odds that all of the staff have vaccine exemptions? I know, I know. Um, but in many ways, a vaccine exemption, um, you know, there's a way to get them. You know, it's easy to print and easy to request. I think uh, groups like Voices for Freedom just put the PDF up on their website and, yeah, made it a free-for-all, basically. Mm. And so, um, you know, uh, my husband was sort of like, you know, debating with himself, oh, I might make a report. But um, someone beat us to it because not a couple of days later, um, they were fined by WorkSafe for about $10,000. Um, again, for all these violations. And it turns out maybe about a week or so ago, still didn't um, address any any of the concerns by WorkSafe. And they were fined a further $10,000, uh, $14,000, I think, for um, not complying and not, not engaging in the process. Of course, you know, um, when you look at the website, or at least uh, what the website was when that article was put out a few weeks ago, um, they were trying to get people to sign up as members like running this like it was a private club and the idea that of course we can have whatever rules if it's a club um doing the same thing that the um the love boat club or what was known as the mad cafe was doing um just trying to circumvent all those rules um however that uh that enrollment form is now gone from the website but if you read the article i wrote i do include a screenshot that was, of course, taken from the original news article, which I've linked to. And of course, you know, you see some usual, uh, what can we say, uh, sovereign citizen details inside. So it's quite interesting that they are leaning towards that sovereign citizenship when they had no problem taking, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars um, in work subsidies. But of course, you know, it's not can't be a Sri Shamoy story without trying to look at what is the history of this organization um, and why there's actually quite a um, disconnect between the owner of the restaurant who was, um, you know, refusing to follow the vaccine mandates as well then the um, national director who was saying, actually, this is against what our guru would teach. And that's not, that's not necessarily what I knew of the guru at all. So I was actually quite surprised um, because the guru, um, Sri Chamoy, was very much a pro-homeopathy. And in some allegations made by former disciples, um, he would try to um, take any credit that was done by medical science when it came to curing his disciples of breast cancer or certainly um, directing them to abortion services on the sly. So it's quite a mixed message regarding whether uh, Sri Chamoy would actually uh, approve of vaccines. But that's something I'm going to actually following up on in the second part of the article where we actually look at not only his unusual health claims, um, but also um, the allegations of abuse of his disciples as well as some of his um, more gonzo public um, publicity tactics, which include uh, extreme weightlifting and the 31,000 or 3,100 kilometer um, ultra marathon race that's run every year in New York City. Wow, yeah. that's a long way. <laughs> that is. And um, there's a documentary about that, isn't there, that you, um, you've watched? Yes, um, that's the run and become. So one part of that is following a disciple of Sri Chamoy doing this 3,100 kilometer race, but it's just around this block, the single block in New York City, you know, in the sweltering heat. And so they, it takes a couple of months to complete to do that many, that much of an ultra marathon around the block. Ow. Uh, yeah. That must um, be very boring. Yeah, but they also um, have a couple other vignettes of following other ultra marathon runners, though it's not clear if these other runners are part of Sri Shamoy, but just really trying to make a connection between discipline and athleticism and meditation that goes into being able to complete these, uh, these sort of runs. 
Okay, so the the Lotus Hut restaurant in Christchurch, it might not even be that their excuse is that their guru says that they should be resisting mandates and and uh, scanning and all that. It, it might be that he would have been supportive. Yeah, well, that was the that's the argument made by um, Jayoti, um, Jayoti, um Jagyoti uh, Dallas, who is an Auckland director. He says that no our guru would be very much about complying and peace. So it's about working with government and following health policy. And when you look at some of the things he says, um, as much as he's like, you know, spiritual health is very important. He does have a couple of aphorisms where he talks about, and there is that expertise that brought, that's brought in by medical science that we do need to listen to now and then. Having grown up in India, he, um, did, he, was, he did suffer from malaria and so had constant um, attacks over the course of his life and talked quite a bit about having taking that treatment when he was younger and, or having to take it several times and how bitter that medicine was. Um, now, of course, the guru died in 2007. So what's happened in the few years since is that it's been quite difficult to um, figure out, you know, what stories are true, and what stories are false, because a lot of the um, disciples have become a lot more savvy and have really Google bombed or <laughs> astroturfed um, the Google search engine. So you're just getting, you know, you're getting two or three pages of just nothing but Sri Shamoy or um, his organization's sponsored websites from all these different um, co.uk.org and so on. And, you know, of course, we all know two or three pages in, you sort of feel like, oh, can't really believe or fault, you know, nothing else is really accurate after that. Mm. Um and so of do, they not, always... do they not just replace him with somebody else? No, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> um, you know, there was a bit, there hasn't quite, there's been a bit, bit of a leadership gap. Um, they don't quite have the same publicity machine that they used to. They used to be really big into their world records. Um, one particular member, Ashrita um, Furham, I believe his name is pronounced, um, had about 60 something of these records. And I think he holds many of them still, but it's for doing silly stuff like walking backwards underwater. And <laughs> um, one thing they would always do for his birthday is do again, these ridiculous stunts, like let's make the world its biggest pencil and, you know, use that to write happy birthday messages to your guru, to the guru. The Guinness book of records has always felt somewhat arbitrary to me. Some of the weird stuff in there. It's like, how, how did someone even come out with doing this? Hmm. Yes. Yeah. I think that's it. That would be a challenge coming up with uh, something that's completely novel that you get into the uh, the Guinness Book of Records with. All right. Well, that's uh, that's uh, some really interesting stuff. We'll be uh, interested to see part two of your article that's going to go up on the website. I think that we have um, talked for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope that some of our listeners are, are still here. Still here. Yes. Well, I mean, if I some think... of them are still here, it might be good to talk about um, how they may want to stay here by becoming a member of uh, Skeptics. Yes, take it away, probably. Well, I mean, you know, part of what we're going to do at the end of each podcast is just talk a little bit about some of the activities that are happening across the country um, or potentially or um, activities that are being hosted by our members that you may feel are of a skeptical bent. Um, first of all, we have Skeptics in the Pub in Wellington that's happening this Friday, which would be February the 11th. Um, it's our usual bi-weekly meetup. So we'll be at the Lobby Lounge, which is the lounge inside the Intercontinental Hotel on 2 Gray Street, but not the 2 Gray Street restaurant, which is right next door. So we just want to make things extra confusing and use your critical thinking to find out where we are. Um, we, we have had members before go next door and have a really nice cup of tea at 2 Gray, um, <laughs> but fail to find us in the bar next door, unfortunately. So Yes, come come to the uh, the bar inside the continent Intercontinental Hotel. Come and join us. It's a really good evening. Um, we have some fascinating chats um, every time we meet up, and it's a really nice, friendly group. So, if you are in the Wellington region, if you've popped down this week with a certain convoy, please come in and visit us. We'd love to see. <laughs> Um, however, um, you may not be part of that convoy because uh, if you're going to join us, you need your vaccine passport to enter the bar. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> um, and that's what's required under the red setting. Um, we start at 6 p.m. and it goes to the last skeptic leaves, um, but we definitely usually are gone by last call at 11 o'clock. Um, if you need more information, we do have a meetup page. Um, you can find us at meetup.com under um wellington skeptics in the pub 
And um, you can RSVP your attendance there. So we look forward to seeing you on Friday. And um, if you're not in the Wellington area, um, we well, are running a Skeptics in the Pub online, aren't we? We are, yes. Once every four weeks at the moment, we have an online one. So I think the next one is uh, just over three weeks' time. Um, look at any of your local Skeptics in the Pub groups on meetup.com for that one. I post the event in the Wellington, Auckland and Christchurch Skeptics in the Pub. Once you've RSVP'd, there is a Zoom link which will allow you to join the meeting. And it'll be great to see you guys online, bring a beer or something, and uh, and maybe something interesting to chat about as well. Because Craig and I, we're, we're there pretty much every time, and we're always looking for newsletter content. So if you've got any juicy tidbits, we are we are keen to hear them. Now, of course, if uh, people socializing is not what your skeptical mind wants, but you want to do something a little bit more in the activism range, um, Mark, what else do we have happening in Wellington? Oh, yeah. So every other week in Wellington, we have skeptical activism. Oh, thanks for that one. That's a really good plug. Uh, so on the week that we don't have our Friday skeptics in the pub, the um, I believe that's going to be on the 17th. Thursday the 17th next week? On the alternating Thursday, so the 17th of February and every two weeks from then. We meet in the Fork and Brewer in Wellington. Uh, Normally we take laptops with us, sit down in the pub and spend maybe three or four hours complaining. And uh, as an old white man, complaining is something I do really well. So we look at ASA complaints, broadcasting standards complaints, complaining to MedSafe, complaining to the Commerce Commission. We basically go out and find things that we think are dangerous, that are bad for people, a lot of alternative health and, and other ideas where people are charging a lot of money for Things like uh, high-dose vitamin C injections for cancer. A lot of really scary stuff that it turns out it's illegal to advertise in this country. And we report them and we try to get them in trouble, try to get them to take down their advertising. So if you're interested in helping out with a little bit of activism, it's a small, cozy group, normally just a few of us there. Uh, Come along, help us. And your first complaint, you get a free pint as soon as it's been submitted. Thank you, Mark. Um, That's quite an incentive. It yeah. is, isn't it? I think we we I've years ago I got one of those um, loyalty cards from uh, the bar, and we just use it every time we're in there. At the moment, I think it's got two hundred and fifty dollars on it, so um, we're ready for a good few people to put in complaints and claim their free pint. All right, just a couple more points. Um, now we have a lovely new treasurer on board named Daniel, not to be confused with Daniel Ryan. Um, but Daniel's just asking everyone to check their inboxes and spam boxes because he's been sending renewal notices for subscriptions. Um, but he's had some reports back that um, some of you have expired credit cards. Um, so get in touch with Daniel at um, treasurer at skeptics.nz, that's skeptics with a K. Uh, if you're unable to access your memberful profile to um, update that information, or if you have any in, um, issues um, paying your subscription, um, if you are new to skeptics and you, or if you've forgotten um, what it means to have an annual subscription, well, wonder no more. Um, membership with the skeptics uh, gives you um, regular updates via our weekly newsletter and our podcast, a discount on the most educational and entertaining conference on the calendar, which is our skeptics conference. <laughs> and you can get the warm and fuzzy feeling that you've done something fantastic. <laughs> And you have a chance to nominate individuals, um, both the famous and infamous, for the Ben Spoon Award, as well as for the Bravo Awards for um, journalistic excellence, again, um, at our annual conference. And Um, Skeptic of the Year, actually, our most recent award. So uh, we're always looking for um, people who've been doing great work um, challenging the nonsense that's out there in New Zealand. Exactly. Um, Think of it at the moment. (laughs) Um, our membership model does come in three tiers. So if you're a student or unwaged, um, that's about $20 a year. If you're waged, that's about $40 a year. And hey, if you have a family and you want to be um, skeptical role models, then that's $60 a year. So if you want to join up, you can follow us at the website. Again, that's skeptics.nz slash join or follow the join link on the uh, main website. Very good. Okay, well, I think uh, we, we've done well with our first podcast. Um, so that's all the time we've got this week. 
I hope I, that you hope we've Sorry? done well. I was going to say, you say you think we've done well. I hope we've done well. I'm, well, I'm not totally just... convinced, but we we will wait. And well, we see, need evidence. Uh, we need evidence. the feedback, right? <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, we need to go yes, under we... peer review. We need to find reviewer number two to tell us that we are not so great. Well, if you would like to give us feedback, we have set up a Twitter account, and that's the at Pod. And, uh, and, and yes, we would love to receive some feedback on there from you. And uh, once we're properly set up with our hosting and so on, we would love it if you gave us a positive review. Don't bother if you want to give us a negative review. <laughs> uh, Craig, you look like you've uh, misspelled na in yeah, na, by the way. Um, do you want to make us a new Twitter account with an H in it? Uh, I can just edit the, um, I can just edit the, uh, the handle to put an H in. Awesome. Oh, I didn't realize you could do that. That would be great. I yeah, think, yes, I think with can. an H is the standard spelling of Yenar. Well, that's an interesting point really, because <laughs> when I looked up the, the YouTube video today on Kiwiisms to figure out exactly how to pronounce Yenar on the screen there, they had Yenar without an H. Whoa. So they had an H on the yeah, but not an H on the na. Yeah. That's controversial. <laughs> we, we might have to put this to a vote. Well, everyone, stay tuned for the next podcast to find a right. thrilling but, version but, but, of but this if, debate. But if you think that nah really does have an H, then uh, then I can I can change that on Twitter. I think so. Um, yeah, we will we will do our homework and figure this out. We'll do. You can do a Google thing, can't you? Where you can uh, you can pit two search terms against each other and find which one is more popular. We will do mm. that. We'll figure out what the standard usage is, and we will uh, make sure our Twitter reflects that and the website and everything else. Oh, for awesome! <laughs> oh, would that have been another good podcast name? That's probably <laughs> taken, right? Probably is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. So we will see you all in two weeks' time. We hope you enjoyed it. Good night for now. Bye. Adios. Bye.